This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I am absolutely delighted today to have the nation's leading geologist with us, a man of uh, immense training and study who understands all sorts of things in relation to geology and in relation to climate. I'm delighted to have with us Professor Ian Plymer. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for having me. Now, Ian, just to satisfy the viewers, and I remember one lady saying about your views in relation to the climate in the past and what happened in the past, how would you know it? Would you just remind us of your background and the number of universities in which you've held very eminent positions? Well, I'm a geologist and we read the rocks. And from that, we can read what the climate was like. We can read how quickly sediments were being formed. We can measure where we were because continents have moved around. We can look at what the temperature of rocks were when they got cooked up. We can look at how much they moved when they've been broken. Uh, there are a lot of techniques we use, and these are fundamental techniques of physics and chemistry. And we've been using these for hundreds of years. My first university appointment was at Macquarie University in Sydney. Then it was the University of New South Wales. Uh, then I was um, working in the industry for a while. Then I was at the University of New, New, uh, sorry, New England. Then I was the chair and head of geology at the University of Newcastle. Then I was a professor of Lagerstätten Kunde at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. Uh, then I was a professor and head of Earth Sciences, which was meteorology, geology and geophysics. I was professor and head at the University of Melbourne for 13 years. And as some uh, viewers abroad wouldn't know, but that's, that's Australia's greatest university. And then I was a professor at the University of Adelaide. So I've had my good share of universities at various levels. And geology is a total integration of what's happened with the planet. We use all the principles of chemistry and physics to understand what has happened. So it is very easy to actually calculate and show what has happened in the past. And to do this, you really need quite a training in all the sciences. And most geologists are polymaths. And it's for that reason that we have a very, very different um, view on climate than those people who get paid to frighten us witless. And we polymaths use facts. Uh, if people don't like those facts, well, they accuse us of being controversial. Well, so be it. Is there such a thing as climate science, Ian? No, there isn't. Uh, we geologists are the climate scientists if we are going to have climate science. For 250 years, our textbooks have had deep and meaningful discussions about climate. And this arose from geology in Europe, where people saw debris left behind by glaciers. And there were great arguments. Were these boulders left behind by Noah's flood? Were these boulders thrown by trolls in great wars that they had? Uh, and eventually it was decided that this was material that was left behind by retreating glaciers because the geologists then do what geologists today do. We go and look at a modern ice sheet and see what happens to the physics and the chemistry of that ice sheet. And it was concluded that in Europe we had had a very, very great ice age that had left a lot of material on the surface. And a little bit later in the Paris Basin and then later in the UK, 
geologists were looking at fossils. And these were fossils of tropical organisms. And they correctly concluded that, well, wait a minute, um, Paris isn't tropical now. Something significant must have happened. The climate must have changed. And we knew that in the 18th century. So geology textbooks are full of work on climate change. And one of the first things you do when you're working in an area and looking at outcrops is you look at the sediments because the sediments are where the atmosphere, the water and the rocks interact. You look at the ancient sediments and you say, I wonder what the climate was like. I wonder whether there was ice here. I wonder whether it was raining heavily. I wonder whether it was a desert. Now, you can work this out. And there are parts of the world where I've worked, such as in Poland, where you can see, well, this material formed in a, an environment very similar to the Persian Gulf. But that was only 300 million years ago in Poland. So we, we put together the modern environments, look at what we see in ancient environments and come up with the obvious conclusion. So every outcrop we're at, we ask those questions. What was the climate like when these rocks formed? But I read in the newspapers and, and heard in the media, particularly the television media, that the 4th of July of this year was the hottest day on earth in the last 125,000 years. And the Secretary General of the United Nations, whose background seems to have been uh, a left-wing politician in Portugal, the Secretary General said that we had moved from global warming to global boiling. Uh, what do you say about those? Well, there's three things. Firstly, you shouldn't be reading newspapers and looking at the mainstream media. The second thing is you don't want to be listening to what failed socialists tell you. And the third thing is that you can only come up with such superlatives uh, if you do not understand the past or if you totally ignore the past. Now, in the United States, in the Dust Bowl years of the 1920s and 1930s, it was hotter than now. Those temperatures from that period of time have been amended. They have been pushed down in the record, and that makes it look as if we've had a rise in temperature over time. But if you look at the newspaper reports of that time, then you will get the actual temperatures and not the amended temperatures in the temperature record, which is used by the IPCC and others. It was hotter in the 1920s and 1930s. In the medieval warming period a 1,000 years ago, it was about five degrees warmer than now. It was about three or four degrees warmer than now in the time of Jesus. In Minoan times, it was about five degrees warmer. So if someone asks you, um, is the planet warming or cooling, the only logical answer you can give is yes, because since the time of Jesus, the planet has been cooling. Since the Dark Ages, the planet's been warming. Since the medieval times, the planet's been cooling. Since the Little Ice Age, for some surprising reason, we've been warming since the Little Ice Age. So we've been warming and cooling in cycles. Now, the figure of 125,000 years is an interesting one to pick because someone was clearly aware that we had an interglacial at that period of time. Glaciation is when the ice expands in an ice age and interglacial is when the ice contracts. And that interglacial, sea level was about seven metres higher than now and the temperature was about uh, five degrees warmer than now. We have just come out of a glaciation 14,700 years ago. The peak of our interglacial was 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. It was warmer then than now. And for the last 4,000 years, we have been cooling but with spikes of warming and cooling. So 
that was calculated, misleading and deceptive behaviour to raise that figure of 125,000 years. Those that claim that the 4th of July was the hottest day uh, have not read American history, have not read planetary history, do not understand geology. And if they did understand geology, they would realise that we are in an ice age. We've been in an ice age for 34 million years. The planet's been cooling for 50 million years. If you want hotter times in the past, go back 50, 100, 200, 400, 600 million years ago. It was much, much hotter than now. So those sort of words, with the superlatives that people are putting to them, uh, um, basic ignorance dressed up as a scare campaign. I have read in your green book, which I think is an excellent book because people who are not scientists like me can read it and understand what you're talking about because it is of that quality. But I have read in that, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that at the beginning of every of the, each of the last ice ages, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere was greater than now. Is that correct? That is correct. We've had six major ice ages and six out of the six were initiated when we had more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. And we have been decreasing in atmospheric carbon dioxide from about 0.7% to 0.04%, we've been decreasing for the last 500 million years. And that's because the carbon dioxide has been tied up in shells, in carbon-rich sediments, in coal and in oil. And we have been decreasing at such a rate that if we had another significant ice age, uh, we could halve the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, all plant life would die. We have been decreasing in carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere for 500 million years. And the founder of Greenpeace, Dr. Patrick Moore, Patrick is, is saying, look, we've got to be burning more coal. We've got to stop all vegetation dying because if we halve the atmospheric carbon dioxide content, we have no vegetation, vegans will die, uh, and we will, we will have a planetary crisis. That is the crisis, and the founder of Greenpeace got kicked out of Greenpeace when they got taken over by the communists. But he's a, a biologist, an ecologist, he's a, a very rigorous scientist, and he, like so many others, have, have been able to measure that the atmospheric carbon dioxide content has been decreasing for a long time, but every time we've had an ice age, it's been higher than now. And so the mantra that a high carbon dioxide content will lead to global warming is not shown with science. Now, with Greenpeace, you say that the communists have taken over Greenpeace. Is this part of the march through the institutions that we seem to be seeing throughout Western society? I think that march started in 1968 with the student riots. Um, then Patrick Moore was a student he then later did a PhD and uh, formed Greenpeace, and that was mainly to object to whaling. And um, Greenpeace, school education, university education, they have all been affected by the march of the left through the education systems. Uh, it is very, very hard to be able to get employable people now that have come out of the school system. Now, I've talked about your book, your big book, Green Murder, which is absolutely superb, it gives you all the answers to 
all the questions you could possibly want. You've embarked on a, a project which is to present in a succinct way to various age groups the same facts. And I think they're called the Little Green Books, are they not? Could you tell us a little about that and where we can get them? Green Murder was written in 2020. And in 2020, I spent 10 months in a clinic having treatment for cancer. And rather than sit around and moan, I wrote a book. In 2023, I was in the same clinic having treatment again. And rather than sit around and moan, I thought, well, rather than write a book like Green Murder, which is for someone at your level, I will write something for children. And many people who read my book said, why don't you write something for children? So I wrote a trilogy while I was in this cancer clinic. And the first one is for kids who are 8 to 12 years old. And that first book is a book about the carbon cycle and the carbon cycle relates to food and the way their body works. And I deal with things that young children, especially young boys, absolutely love. You know, they love the word poo or wee or farts. And I've gone into <laughs> the carbon cycle and how they eat and what happens to the carbon and how if there was net zero, they would be dead. They couldn't live. And it's a very simple, humorous um, book about body functions, which I know kids love. And I had my seven-year-old grandson in Montreal recently hold up a book on FaceTime and show me the cover of it. And it's a cover, it's a book about farting. And he just loved it. He was screeching with laughter. The second book is a book written, which is somewhat irreverent. Does that it's, appeal, um, could, I, could I interrupt you there, Ian? Does that appeal to young ladies too? Oh, yes. Uh, the book that my grandson held up uh, was Do Girls Fart? <laughs> and You're a naughty man, uh, Ian. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, it's meant to be naughty. It's like being naughty. And the second book is for teenagers, for high school kids, and it is a naughty book. It's giving them some questions they can ask their teacher. It's questioning some of the things they're taught. It is seditious. It's deliberately um, uh, asking kids to be a little bit rebellious, but also playing at what you hear teenagers often say. And teenage of, teenagers often say, oh, it's not fair. So I talk about, is it fair that you've got electricity, whereas a third of the kids in the world don't have electricity? Is it fair that a black kid your age is working in a dangerous open pit or underground in the Congo getting uh, cobalt for an electric vehicle? Is that fair? And then I go through the whole cycle of climate and how climate is always changing and what drives it and some of the fundamentals to show it's, it's absolutely, totally wrong. And the third book is for um, post-high school, post-secondary kids and, and others who might not have any scientific background. And it's basically a summary of what I used to do when I took groups of 16-year-olds uh, outback and I would teach them how to read the land. We would teach them how to understand ancient climates. We would teach them bush tucker. And this is a summary of the Earth's history uh, written for someone who's 16, 18 year, years old. And this summary uh, goes into climate change, goes into extinction and goes into why it's absolutely impossible 
the story that we're being fed now has any credibility at all. And then I go into the fact, well, soon you might be buying and driving a car, soon you might be buying a house and going into the problems that they face. So these are books that are deliberately seditious. These are books for parents and grandparents to read to or to give to their kids. And these are books to try to deprogram the propaganda that children have been fed at school. And how many pages roughly is each book? They're written for the audience. So the first one is uh, 60 pages in colour, lovely colour diagrams um, and colour drawings um, and a lot of humour in it. The second one is uh, about 100 pages, same thing, a lot of colour drawings. Uh, And the third one is also about 100 pages. And uh, these are deliberately written for the audience and deliberately written as an A5 size such that they can be carried around. Now, as we speak, they are being printed in Brisbane. They are being published by Connell Court Publishing in Brisbane. These books are being released at the CPAC conference in Sydney on the 19th and 20th of August. Now, no one has seen this book. Three reviewers have seen it, and the publisher has seen it, and the illustrators have seen it. Yet last night, Facebook did a fact check on these books, and Facebook has declared that these books are false. Facebook? <laughs> they're either fraudulent or they're psychic, because no one could have seen that they declared that they're false. This is Facebook here in Australia or internationally? Uh, it's internationally. Now, every bomber pilot knows that when you're over the target, the flak increases, and I'm getting flak before I've even taken off. (laughs) Well, that's so extraordinary, and it should sell well. Isn't it extraordinary that uh, people in a a social medium who would not have... There wouldn't be many people there who would be scientists, and there'd be certainly (laughs) nobody there who would have your skills and qualifications, and yet they're saying that this is, what, misinformation? (laughs) They just um, did, did, a, did a fact check and said it, it's it's uh, it's fraud. And it, this morning in the shower, I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking, well, as a young person, I read banned books. Uh, I, I, I read um, Portnoy's Complaint, and I, I read um, some of Philip Roth's other writings too. I read Lady Chatley's Lover which is is a book we shouldn't have read. It had nothing to do with the sex. It was to do with the class structure. And <laughs> I read those books with glee. Now, those that criticise me don't read books. They couldn't have possibly read this book. So I get criticised now by people who don't read books. In the past, when books were banned, we would avidly go out and try to get a copy and buy them. And I have a copy of... Um, a, a, privately printed copy of Power Without Glory, which was banned um, because it was written by a well-known communist. Um, Some of these books are my prized books in the collection, but I've read them. People now that want a Facebook uh, ban me don't even read the books. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I can remember that time when if you wanted to read certain books, like Lady Chatterley's Lover, you had to have them sent to you, posted to you from overseas and hope that they wouldn't be (laughs) intercepted by the police on the way. Did you notice uh, there was a report of of a leading leading scientist, John Clauser, who has a, a Nobel Prize in physics, who was to speak... 
they, they'd, uh, they'd got him to speak at uh, an IMF, International Monetary Fund Conference in relation to climate models. He was going to speak there. But apparently beforehand in Seoul, he said there is no, there's no climate uh, crisis. There, there is no problem in relation to the climate. He'd made a speech along those lines. He was then disinvited by an organisation like the International Monetary Fund, who would know nothing about the climate. They'd know as much about the climate as I know. They certainly wouldn't have your knowledge. And yet they disinvited him. Do you find that surprising? No, it's happened to me many times. Uh, it's quite a normal tactic. He is an eminent person who is not playing in the right key. Um, I have been banned, uh, disinvited from speaking at two universities in Australia. Uh, last year I was to give a, a, a talk at a private dinner in Hobart in Tasmania. Uh, two pubs refused to have me talk at a private dinner. They would uh, cancel the venue. It took a while to get a venue where I could give a private talk. Uh, I was invited by the late Duke of Edinburgh to um, give an address to the Royal Geographical Society at Buckingham Palace. And I accepted and was ready to go to Buckingham Palace. And then I got uninvited to go to Buckingham Palace. Clearly the Mandarins had got to him. And uh, clearly um, people didn't want to hear that story. Notwithstanding all of my books, I managed to get to the Duke of Edinburgh because one of his drinking friends, a Navy friend, uh, would smuggle them in and uh, deliver them to him and uh, Prince Philip would write back to me with comments on the book and I have one just here on the side. It, uh, uh, he says, uh, this is a book, Climate Delusion, he says, I find it frustrating as a layperson to find answers to technical questions. You see gigantic wind turbines appearing all over the country, but there's very little about the practical value of these monstrosities. Your book demolishes the fictions created by wishful thinking. When will common sense and good science prevail and what happens if it does not do so fairly soon? Now, that's... Um, Prince Philip, who was writing on my books, very clearly um, he didn't have a say in banning me going to Buckingham Palace. So I'm not surprised that the IMF have banned Dr Clauser. That is a normal tactic. However, the average person is not stupid. People are tuning into ADF TV because they want a different story. People are, are reading blog sites because they want a different story, because they are just sick of the rubbish they get from the mainstream media. So I'm not surprised he's banned. I'm not surprised that opinions like mine get banned. I'm not surprised that uh, I get put into Facebook jail before the book even comes out. This is the normal behaviour of the left who are vicious who are vacuous, who have no knowledge, and 30 years ago were objecting to the power tactics used by various despotic regimes. They have learnt well and they use these tactics now themselves. Well, I suppose your knighthood was withdrawn then uh, as a result of your book not being allowed to be read at Buckingham <laughs> Palace, at least publicly. You, you, refer, you refer to a scientist. He wasn't really a scientist. He was a a friend, an ally of uh, Stalin, you refer, you refer to him and you give that as an example of what's going on, and that's Lysenko. Could you tell us a little about Lysenko and the terrible things that happened in Russia with Lysenko where he had the completely fraudulent science? 
Well, in the Soviet Union, Lysenko, as a peasant, got into a position of power. We see that today in politics, where people of peasant class get into positions of power. They're quite manipulative and quite clever. And he viewed um, agriculture through the eyes of a communist, that if all plants are equal, uh, if given no fertiliser, if you don't use any genetics, they will grow to their maximum. Um, he almost got to the stage of talking to plants, as we know um, some prominent people have done. And as a result, any genetics that was being undertaken in institutions in the Soviet Union was banned. Um, plant geneticists were sent to the gulags. Some were killed. Uh, plant geneticists lost their jobs. And the end result of that was that the Soviet Union starved. And there were some 30 million people who died of starvation. Most of those were in the Ukraine. And that starvation was driven by a scientific policy. Now, I saw that when I travelled through the Soviet Union in 1977. I was driving. I travelled through all of Eastern Europe, uh, driving, and then through the Soviet Union, came out in Finland. And if you drive from... Um, Soviet Karelia into Finnish Karelia, same soils, same climate, even the same language. And the wheat in Soviet Karelia was about a foot high. And in Finnish Karelia, it was about four feet high with big heads uh, of grain. And that was 40 years after the policies of Lysenkoism started. And Lysenko finally lost his job when Stalin came to power. And that was some 25 years before I went to the Soviet Union. So that had a generational effect on food production in the Soviet Union. That killed people. But what happened is that those that objected to the political scientific policy of the day were dismissed. The analogy is chilling. Exactly the same thing is happening today. Climate policy is costing countries trillions of dollars. Those scientists like me who have a different view based on evidence, get dismissed, we lose various positions, we lose various um, uh, powerful positions in institutes and in um, professional organisations, and we are basically banned. We don't undergo the same fate that Lysenko's victims do. We don't go to gulags, but in effect, we are professionally dismissed. And this is happening now. And this climate policy is one of the worst science policies we've had in the history of time. Lysenkoism was another. This is costing lives. It's costing huge amounts of money. And it changes the whole sovereignty and political balance of the planet. I was looking at a report, Ian, uh, by an organisation called Net Zero, which uh, favours favours what the government is doing, but they calculated the cost of what will be necessary to achieve net zero by 2050 and what will have to be done by 2030 to be on the path. And what I found fascinating when I looked at the figures in relation to 2030, they were in trillions. And I didn't understand what all that meant, but I had just compared it with the gross domestic product of Australia. And I found that this amount of money was three quarters of the total that we produce in one year. That's to get to 2030 on the way to 2050, which the government has announced we are going to reach and the opposition 
The Liberal government had surprisingly, contrary to what they promised they would do, Mr Morrison had also said we would achieve this by 2050. So by 2030, what we've got to do in terms of all the new plants and the transmissions and so on and the cost of uh, the renewables, we've got to spend three quarters of what we produce in one year by 2030. Well, I, I did some back of the envelope calculations, which I hope are roughly correct. And I worked out that that would cost every man, woman and child $60,000. So that if you had a family of four, that would cost them a quarter of a million dollars. That's to get to 2030. Do you think Australians are going to accept this? Well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think your numbers are wrong. <laughs> I think the, um, uh, the, the reality is that these figures generally tend to be orders of magnitude higher. Uh, the second thing is this is politically and absolutely totally unacceptable. The third thing is that uh, we have no conservative uh, opposition in this country. They've dropped the ball and they seem to think that by whispering sweet green noises that the Greens will vote for them. But that will never happen. They might as well use a word that they haven't used for a long while, and that is principle. Stand up on matters of principle. Net zero will not work for a number of reasons. We don't have the metals. We don't have the land. We don't have the workforce. We don't have the money. And we cannot survive as a Western country uh, with uh, net zero, with reduced power, reduced agriculture, and the end result of that is depopulation. Now, many of the net zero people are saying we should get rid of, say, nitrogen fertilisers. Fine. We would have to double the land area we have for food production or halve the global population. And if we want to halve the global population, I invite them to go first. I promise I'll follow you, but you shuffle off first. So this is pie in the sky. This is done by people who are pushing a political agenda. Uh, the average person is not aware of the implications of this, and I think we should be shouting it from the rooftops, that net zero will take every penny you've got and take your future and take your children's future and your grandchildren's future. We cannot afford it. We've taken hundreds of years to get to efficient power generation delivery systems. We are having these abandoned by ideology, but not by electrical engineers. Incidentally, did you notice, Ian, did you notice that the Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, has announced that uh, because of what he has announced by way of net zero, he has now saved the Barrier Reef? <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, he doesn't seem to tell us that we have a 36-year um, measurement of the Great Barrier Reef and he must have been Prime Minister a decade ago because the trend is your friend. And there have been long-term trends that we've been able to measure, but um, the, this, this is a very common for politicians to take credit for things that just happened uh, as a result of other people's actions. Now, I don't believe in the theory of global warming and I don't believe in it because I rely on people like yourself. I think what you're saying is very believable. What you and your colleagues are saying is very believable. You are scientists. You know what you're talking about. And uh, I, I would think that a theory like that of global warming would have to be something which has been overwhelmingly demonstrated before any politicians would be foisting this on us. Uh, but the strange thing is that I find 
that even if it were true, even if the theory were true, given what other countries are doing in particular, communist China and other developing countries, what they are doing in terms of building coal-fired power stations, burning coal, which we export to them and so on, obviously anything we do here will have absolutely no effect on the climate. Well, a couple of points. The first thing is the evidence against human-induced global warming is overwhelming. And I go into that in the third book uh, of The Little Green Book, where I just give the history of the planet and looking at the cycles where we've had 400 million year, 143 million year, um, 100,000 year, and then the solar cycles of 22 years, the lunar tidal cycles of 18 and a half years, and the ocean cycles of 60 years. And I go into the cycles of climate and how we are in a cycle and no one has yet shown us that this warming cycle we're in is anything else but a natural cycle. The second thing is, is no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. So um, you need overwhelming evidence to show that what we natural scientists have found is incorrect. The second thing is that throughout the history of the planet, we've, we've had much warmer times than now. For 80% of the time, it's been warmer and wetter than now. And life has thrived when it's been warmer. In historical times, when it's been warmer, we've had more food, we've had great empires, we've had a population increase. If we had warming and uh, was driven by humans or it was natural, so what? Uh, we know from history and we know from geology that it's fabulous for the planet to have warming. Things get a lot better. So uh, I don't have a problem with that. The third thing is that why have non-solutions to a non-problem? The solutions have not been tried and tested. No one's ever done them. Uh, no one has ever been able to change the weather, yet it's been tried. Um, you can imagine a spaceship visiting Earth and they look at these humans doing a rain dance and they say, oh, no, we're going to leave this. Uh, we're not going to land here. And then they come again a little bit later and they say humans gathering up women during the coldest times of the little ice age and this witch hunt that took place where thousands of women were killed uh, because crops were failing and it was due to witches. It wasn't due to a natural climate cycle. And so they visit again and see us looking at these witches uh, getting killed and think, oh, no, we're not going to visit the planet. And then they'd come again and they come again and look at planet Earth and they see humans eating insects, saying, oh, we're going to change the weather and climate by eating insects. I mean, th th we have this madness, which is clear proof we've never been visited by aliens, but we've got madness going on. And every now and then we go through periods of collective madness, generally when we're very wealthy. And probably the best recorded one was the Dutch tulip craze in the 1600s where people were spending two years' pay on buying a tulip bulb. It all fell apart and it all collapsed and Holland went from the wealthiest country in the world to one of the poorest by a fad. Now, we're in a fad at present. We are too wealthy, we feel guilty, we're hanging on to this residual Christianity and as a result of that, we are wasting money on ideas that are unsubstantiated. And we live in a demon-haunted world. We still are superstitious. And so despite all of the education and all of the wealth, we still do really stupid things. I don't know if you saw her, but I did, and I was very touched. 
there was a schoolgirl, she was being interviewed on television about a year or so ago, and she was crying. She was terribly upset about what was happening to the climate. Now, that tells you something, doesn't it, about what is happening in education? I think that's a good example of child abuse. Children at school are being taught about gender bending. They're being taught about the voice. They don't get told it's an invoice. Uh, that's what they should be told. Uh, they are being told that uh, as a result of their sin, they are going to shorten the life of this planet and, and, and going to die. And that eco-anxiety, I think, is child abuse. And that is one of the reasons I wrote these three books, because I recall that footage of this child crying. Uh, she had uh, was emotionally frail. Like so many young people now, they live in cities. They've never lived in rural areas. They don't know where their food and fibre and fish and metal and energy come from. And they have no idea about cycles and changes. Their whole information base comes off a screen. That's not knowledge. And uh, these people are very fragile and very easy to disturb. And this is what's been happening in our schools. And to me, that is child abuse. You, you've explained to me before that the CO2 emissions of Australia are exhausted completely, are they not, in relation to the, uh, the bushes and crops of Australia? Is, th is that not so? Yes, I've done the calculations and shown that the amount of carbon dioxide that our industry emits and our people emit, um, more than 10 times the amount we emit is absorbed by our grasslands, our crops, our rangelands, our forests and our continental shelf. The same calculations I've done for Canada and for the US and for the planet. And we are absorbing more carbon dioxide on the planet than we humans release. Now, we are releasing a lot of carbon dioxide out of the oceans. We never hear that. But 97% of all emissions, annual emissions, are coming out of the oceans. So what we really should be looking at is why that is happening. And we've known that for only 200 years of chemistry. We've known that carbon dioxide has an inverse solubility in water. If you warm water, uh, it takes some time, but then it releases carbon dioxide. That's what's happening on the planet now. We humans are adding plant food to the atmosphere. If the atmosphere is increasing in carbon dioxide, I say fabulous. That's plant food. And we have been decreasing in plant food in the atmosphere for the last 500 or 470 million years. From, uh, and, and that, uh, to me, is something we never hear. I don't know if you noticed in the last budget, but the, the government closed down all of the small projects. They weren't really that big projects in relation to the improving of dams and the building of dams. There weren't many, but they were all closed down by the present government. And I'm wondering why, and I think this applies to both parties, although the Liberals are taking a different position now, they seem to favour a sun and wind and they disfavour nuclear, though the Liberals are changing on that. They disfavour uh, nuclear and, and uh, hydro. Now, why is it, and I'm suspicious sometimes, why is it that they favour renewables, which are highly profitable, to the Communist Party of China? Well, there's a couple of points. Um, firstly, our renewables 
um, get their major components from China. Um, if you are building solar panels, then you contaminate very large amounts of the prized farmland where we put these solar panels. We contaminate it from heavy metals which go into these solar panels. We destroy productive farmland. If we're using wind turbine blades, they come out of China and they're made from composites of balsa. So you've got to chop down Brazilian rainforest to get the balsa timber. They've got various resins with highly toxic chemicals which are banned in most countries in the world. These resins make it such that you cannot recycle these turbine blades. And so they get dumped. These poisons end up in the water and end up in the soils. Now, we are supporting Chinese communist industry by having solar and wind. It is the union superannuation funds that own a lot of solar and wind facilities. Uh, they also got twinges of communism. So the left is making a lot of money out of pushing this agenda of wind and solar. Hydro in a country like Australia where we've got small areas of suitable rainfall and topography is not really suitable. Nuclear, we, we've, we've had a nuclear discussion now for as long as I've been alive. I can remember going as a child to the Lucas Heights nuclear reactor. That was the first of the two reactors we've had there. And that provides medical isotopes. When I went there in the 1960s, that was in the bush. Now it's surrounded by suburbia and people are complaining there's a nuclear reactor there. That reactor has to be close to an airport such that short-lived isotopes can be transported to Vanuatu, to Broome, to Darwin, and they don't decay. Anyone who's had cancer cannot be against nuclear. We had in the time of Prime Minister John Gordon's time, he made the decision to build a nuclear reactor on Commonwealth land at Jarvis Bay, south of Sydney. The foundations were poured. A major road was put in there. And when he lost power to the Liberal Prime Minister, Billy McMahon, in April 1971, then McMahon did nothing. When the Labor government came in in December 1972, they continued to do nothing. We started a nuclear reactor program. It was killed off actually by the Liberals. Uh, we have had nuclear energy at a research reactor and a medical isotope reactor for more than 60 years in Australia. So we have the people to do this. But what the left doesn't seem to realise is that by killing off coal and killing off gas, we are making Australia strategically a shag on a rock. Almost all of our liquid hydrocarbons come into Australia by ship. Those seaways can be closed. These come from the super refineries in Singapore and in India. This country runs on diesel. We grow crops using diesel. We harvest crops using diesel. We transport food from the rural areas into the cities using diesel. Uh, we have a exposed supply of diesel. We have about 20 days of diesel uh, in Australia. If our supply lines were cut, we couldn't eat. We also have our fertiliser come in. We uh, have very little fertiliser that's made in Australia, the urea and ammonium nitrate. Some of it is made here, but most of it is imported from Russia. So we're exposed to actually getting productivity in our farms um, by not having fertiliser made here. Uh, we are very easy. Uh, there are processes around where we could convert 
much of our low-quality coal into diesel. This was used by the Germans in the Second World War. This was used by the South Africans during embargo times. So what we've done is we've focused on inefficient, unreliable, highly expensive sea breezes and sunbeams at the expense of enriching the labour mates in the union super funds and at the expense of enriching China. And we have ignored the sovereignty of Australia. We are exposed. Close off the sea routes here and we will have anarchy in two weeks. And just on that point of uh, used solar panels, not solar panels, used wind turbines, uh, Nick Cater on this station came across a, a store of them uh, in North Queensland out in the open there, enormous ones but not as big as the current ones and uh, the company concerns as they're just being moved on and got rid of uh, in due course. But they are a serious problem. Now, uh, Just before we go to a reminder about your wonderful new books, EV vehicles, apparently there's a a ship off Holland which has caught fire and they can't put the fire out. And I must say I'm concerned here in relation to EV vehicles being put into underground car parks and similar places. Is there not a problem with EV vehicles? The problem has been recognised by insurance companies and insurance companies now, um, many of them will not insure a car park if there are EVs there and they will not insure ships if there are EVs on board. That is because the lithium batteries can catch a light and when they do, you can't put out that fire. So uh, that is the first problem. The second problem is that we have EVs plugged into apartment complexes which are not wired uh, to have EVs uh, charging there. And so in many places, you cannot take your EV home to your apartment and charge it up. You've got to take it somewhere else. And so EVs are a huge problem with a fire risk and for charging. And in the second book for teenage kids, I, I say, look, you're, you're going to be buying a car soon. You can strut around feeling morally superior driving an EV. Don't get a second-hand one because they don't last long. You've only got to dent the battery and you've got to throw it out. But you must, of course, feel morally superior driving a car with this cobalt in it that comes from child slave labour, children your age who have been mining this cobalt for your EV. And then I say, you know, do you feel good about that? So um, there are fundamental moral questions which the left ignores. The left is quite happy to finger wag on what they think are moral issues. But when you raise other moral issues with them, such as their support of slave labour, or in the case of wind turbines, they mine rare earth elements and buy an in um, in Mongolia and in those ores, and I've been to these mines, in those ores, uh, high amounts of uranium and thorium, and that's just dumped and spread everywhere. So if you are supporting wind energy, you are supporting the dumping of radioactive waste over very large yes. areas of the producing country. So tell me about your morals. So I think the EV argument can be dealt with on safety and on morals and, of course, efficiency. If you want to drive from... Um, northern Scotland down to London in wintertime, you can't do it. You have to stop three or four times and you get reduced uh, travel distances because of the use of wipers and lights and heaters. Well, this is a terrible thing. 
Ian, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, time is running out. We'll be putting up uh, information at the end of this program for people to know how to get these wonderful new books. Ian, thank you very much for all you do. It's been a wonderful contribution that you make to Australian society. May you long continue. I'm David Flint. And thank you for having me. Not at all. A delight to have you. I'm David Flint. This is ADH TV. And uh, this program is Save the Nation. And uh, the interviewee was Ian Plymer. And his books are being shown on the screen now. Wonderful books they are too. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you.